Hi, and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I, and I think you're interesting, and I love a good, scary story. <laughs> Horror is my favorite genre, in fact, and I've seen the movies The Exorcist and The Thing more times than I can count. When I was a kid, Scooby-Doo was my favorite show, and my parents worried it was giving me too many nightmares, and I was reassured by it that it was always a man in a mask. But as I've gotten older, I've realized it's not always a man in a mask, and that's what makes horror so much fun. We are talking to some folks from some of my favorite recent horror offerings. First, as part of this month where I'm talking to writers I love, we're talking to Sue Hugh and Dave Kajanik. They are the head writers and showrunners for the series The Terror on AMC. The Terror is one you should watch. It's about a group of British sailors who become icebound in the Arctic, are stalked by a terrible monster, and eventually resort to cannibalism. And here's the thing. It's based on a true story. The show is beautiful. It's brilliant. It's brutal. And it has got some of the best horror I've seen on TV with a really new approach to how horror can be done on TV. So we talked with Sue and Dave about how that worked. And then after that, you're going to get to hear from the folks who were the sound designers on the horror movie A Quiet Place, another horror movie I've really enjoyed, which is interesting that it had sound designers because it sort of has this reputation as a silent movie. But it's not. It's a movie where noise can get you killed because the monsters have super sensitive hearing, which means that sound design was so important to it. And they had some really interesting thoughts on what a scary movie sounds like. So get ready for a horror showcase. We're going to start with Sue and Dave, and then we will go to Eric and Ethan of Quiet Place. I think you're going to love it. My guests are Sue Hugh and Dave Kajanik of The Terror on AMC. It's it's one of my favorite new shows of the year. It's a kind of wonderful, dark, bleak horror show. Sue and Dave, thank you for joining me. Thank you for thank having Thank you us. for having us. So the story of this show is a true story embellished, let's say. Um, this is based on a real expedition, the Franklin Expedition. So just for our listeners who haven't watched the show or don't obsessively read Wikipedia entries about famous lost expeditions like me, just give us a, like a quick 20 to 30 second summary of what the Franklin expedition was like where, what they were trying to do and what ultimately happened to them. So the Franklin expedition was an attempt by the British Royal Navy in 1845 to discover the Northwest passage, which was meant to be a kind of backdoor trade route between England and China and India uh, through the Arctic. And they sent two ships, the HMS Terror and the HMS Erebus, which were the um, the most technologically advanced uh, ships of their day. They were warships that had been outfitted, outfitted for polar conditions to go in with a, a combined crew of about 130 men. And they left uh, and were never seen again by their generation. They've, it's since been discovered that both ships made it to a certain point and looked to have been abandoned. And there was a long chain of archaeological evidence pieces of wood, tin cans, forks and knives, things like that, strewn along the coast of one island in the Arctic where they think they tried to walk out to safety, but obviously none of them made it. So it's considered the, the biggest tragedy in the in the British Royal Navy's history. How did you essentially build like the secret 
history of this show. I know you had a book to work with, but also you had to change some of the details of the book because later discoveries were found. So tell me a little bit about building the secret history of uh, the Franklin Expedition for this show. Well, I think once once the the book came out and it was I, I was really excited to read it because I'm a kind of a longstanding Dan Simmons fan. He's the writer of the novel. And also had known this real history from my previous work I used to do as a wilderness guide. So I, I was ex- fully expecting the combination of real history and, and Dan Simmons' kind of horror to be you know, pretty spectacular. And it is. The, the book is outstanding. But what it offers us uh, in terms of a, a television show, a television experience, is this notion that you can take the the conflicts and the anxieties and the you know the issues and play in the real disaster that happened and crank them up a bit uh, with this almost allegorical situation of them being pursued by a creature that is indigenous to the area that is part of Inuit mythology that immediately puts them in a cultural corner uh, as well as obviously a literal one. And um, from there, it's, you know, it's an exciting project because you get to unpack all of these themes that have to do with uh, manifest destiny and have to do with, you know, a colonialist viewpoint and all the things that are part and parcel of an expedition like this. But you get to do it in a way that can be incredibly fun for an audience to, to go through as a, as a horror experience. And the secret history was actually hiding in plain sight. There's so much research done on the Franklin Expedition mm-hmm. and what we loved doing, uh, the writer's room, all of us, we got so into the research People who study the Franklin Expedition become obsessed. And so it's been great to hear that so many of our fans have fallen down that rabbit hole as well. Because, you know, aside from the Tumbach, everything else we try to draw on as much as possible from the actual historical text as possible. And when you were doing the research on the Franklin Expedition, like what from the historical record was most horrifying or most unsettling to you about what they went through? Well, I have to say that the gold chains, which is something that shows up in our show in the final episode, uh, this is a bit of Inuit testimony that was gathered, I think, by John Ray, uh, who went looking for these ships after they disappeared and, and talked to a mother and her son who had found a camp uh, with some of Franklin's men dead there and went inside of one tent and found a man who was sitting up and still alive whose face had been pierced in a number of different places with gold chains. And if you pulled on one of them, his head was pulled up. It was some kind of weird device that allowed you to pull up and down his head like a puppet. And they were emphatic that what they were describing was accurate. And they didn't have an explanation to why that was. And the Brits interviewing them couldn't think of an explanation as to why that was. But it's uh, something we kept for our show that still haunts me to think about what that what that indicated about the, the mental health of, of, of the men at that point. That's really creepy. Sue, was there anything that, that you were particularly horrified by? There were some Inuit testimonies that talked about actually having found terror uh, right before it sank and that uh, some of the Inuit people went aboard of the ship and were greeted by these men whose faces had turned black. Mm. And then when they followed the men underneath into the ship's lower deck, they found an extremely tall man lying down in the captain's quarters, most likely dead. And so the story is that this uh, Inuit gentleman ran out as fast as possible. <laughs> we do know that one of the um, signs of severe frostbite is your skin dies yeah. and turns all black. But it really tells you these boats became haunted houses at some point. Yeah. And you, well, you yeah. left out the most, the strangest detail from that description is that he had 
super long teeth. Do you remember that? And that that's something that who knows whether there's something lost in translation between, you know, if that was an ictitut um testimony that was translated to English, but somehow in the, in the translation it came out that that man, that dead man's teeth were um, long. Hmm. <laughs> Who knows what that could mean. <laughs> uh, this gives you a sense of what you get on this show. <laughs> How controversial is the idea that there was cannibalism involved here? I've heard, I've heard there's some dispute there and you guys, not to spoil it, history is not a spoiler, but you do sort of delve into that aspect of the story. Yeah, I don't think that cannibalism happened eventually on this expedition is controversial. I mean, there's certainly enough forensic evidence and archaeological evidence. There are plenty of bones that have been found with cut marks that seem to suggest that the stripping of bones for meat, crushed bones where marrow was dug out. I mean, we, there, there's lots of evidence that that happened. Strangely, the more controversial part of this is how big a role lead poisoning played in this disaster because there is some evidence that the can, the tin food that these expeditions had uh, with them uh, was soldered with lead um, and that that over the, over the number of years these men were trapped out on the ice might have contributed to their declining health uh, and maybe some poor decision-making. But that in and of itself uh, is controversial to some people who have studied the Franklin Expedition. The show embraces that idea as part of their downfall, so to speak, but um, that, that, that's more controversial than the notion of cannibalism. Certainly in the day when, when John Ray came back to, to England with this, this uh, oral testimony he gathered from Inuits that there had been cannibalism, Victorian England was just simply not in a place where they could dignify that. In fact, Charles Dickens in particular went after John Ray uh, and pretty much assassinated his character because he just could not tolerate the idea that men on a, on a British uh, Royal Navy expedition could have succumbed to cannibalism. But I think in terms of narrative tropes, Cannibalism is the specter you can't avoid in a show like this, right? right. Mm-hmm. Um, it becomes whether or not uh, we have proof or not, and we actually do have proof when Dave and I were reassured by that, an audience is going to expect that conversation to be brought up yeah. in a survival story. And we just wanted to make sure that we handled it as pragmatically, as neutrally mm. toned as possible. Otherwise, it's China such a bright spotlight on it would have made the discussion louder, but not necessarily more interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting because you do present it in a way where there's almost a pragmatic argument for it within the show. Like it's being presented by people we don't particularly like at that point, but it's certainly like there's a logic to it, you know? Um, How did you uh, sort of engage with that aspect of like everything they do, not just cannibalism, everything they do that dooms them has a very logical argument for why they would do it. In the writer's room, we always wanted to make sure that characters trumped plotting mm-hmm. or that we never used plot to drive, make our characters do things they wouldn't do otherwise. In terms of a survival story, these people want to live. That's got to trump everything. So in terms of why everything becomes an issue of, of practicality, it's because they want to live. Mm-hmm. And that really drives them. And yeah. I also think yeah. when you're working inside of a horror genre, you, you have to decide what your attitude about horror is. And you know, Sue and I are, are are allergic to this kind of jump scare idea of horror. And usually that kind of horror tries to compensate for characters who aren't behaving reasonably or who aren't behaving pragmatically, who are going into sort of basements where they no one in the right mind would go, but the plot requires them. Those are the kinds of horror shows that seem to, to necessitate jump scares to sort of cover their seams psychologically. But we didn't want to be that kind of show. So we wanted to make sure that we weren't um, putting our characters in a situation where they were being pushed into choices that no one would make. 
and certainly with a real, you know, sort of slow motion disaster like this one, where we do have, you know, a fair amount of evidence as to what kinds of decisions they made. Some of them are puzzling. Some of them, you know, they dragged a lot of stuff uh, in boats behind them across King William Island. And, you know, you think from standing outside of that history looking in, why would they make decisions like that that actually made their their chances slimmer? But, you know, it was our job to try to figure out reasonable explanations for that. So when you were looking at like horror touchstones when you were preparing this, whether on TV or movies or in books, I guess, like Beyond the Terror by Dan Simmons, like what were some some touchstones for you too as you were talking about like we want this to look like this, we want this to feel like this, et cetera? Surprisingly, we saw a lot of movies in the writer's room, but we actually didn't see any horror films. Interesting. Nor did we seek out uh, writers for the writer's room yeah. who had a specialty in horror uh, or directors for that matter or editors. We wanted to no. make sure that all yeah. of our collaborators weren't caught up in the bad habits of, of that genre. Uh, so we, we gathered a group of, of people to collaborate on the show who were a little bit scared of the genre because we thought, you know, if we could if we could all step into it pretty boldly, we would get something a bit different or a bit new out of it since none of us was, with one or two exceptions, kind of steeped in that in their careers. And horror always seems like one of those genres that, of all the genres, is the most elastic because it means something different for everyone. Right. So what's great about having 129 characters is they're, in some ways, you can do 129 different horror stories. Right. Because everyone's going to be frightened by different things. So to choose one as the paradigm of our show feels limiting. Right, right. Well, let me let me kind of twist that a little bit, which is horror on TV is hard to do sometimes because horror as a genre ultimately involves release. And obviously you guys only – only had 10 episodes to work with as opposed to like 200 episodes to work with. But you still have to stretch out that tension further than it would in a movie or a novel or something like that. What were some lessons you learned about making that tension stretch so far and yet not having it prematurely break? I think for one thing, we tried to to create uh, obviously different kinds of tension, but the one we wanted to lean into the most was the tension of uh, you know, of, of relationships that were either coming apart or were sort of in some way transforming themselves uh, because of this disaster. And, you know, we have very little of our creature in the first couple of episodes, but we have quite a lot of this dynamic between the commander of the expedition and his two, um, the, his second and third in command, who kind of are like surrogate sons for him and played a lot about the tension of of figuring out sort of who, which son was the one that was uh, more suited to take the captain's place when he was when he's killed in episode 3. And so things like that, we just wanted to build character arcs that that included all of that kind of tension. And if you watch our horror set pieces in the show, what's interesting is we there's very few moments where our characters act frightened. I mean, the one clear exception is that close up on Gutzer when he screams in episode 2 after he sees Gore being lifted up. But if you think about uh, the 105 mass set piece, people are just going. The drive to just save Blanky kicks in. And if you look at Carnival, our characters' instincts just take over in terms of let's get out of this tent. Mm-hmm. We don't have moments of people sitting there or screaming or because in some ways that's it diffuses horror the minute you see people being scared, which is very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. So you almost thought of it more as like you've talked about it as a survival story several times, but do you see survival stories as inherently horror stories and vice versa? Like it feels to me like when you're in a life-threatening situation, you know, if you're if you're out at sea, 
like in a lifeboat. <laughs> like there's no horror to that, but it's a very scary situation. So did you sort of see those two dovetailing in an interesting way? And we also talk, uh, talked a lot about horror as being driven in our in our show, not by fear, that that's sort of kind of the least interesting ingredient to horror. That, you know, the kinds of horror we were we were talking about wanting to to emulate in some way was horror that was driven by either sadness or or rage, you know, th- those kinds of horror. And, you know, whether it be the sad, the existential sadness of being in a situation that you might not survive and watching friends and loved ones um, succumb one by one, or whether that's it's the rage of that scenario or the rage of being in a, in a dangerous situation because of poor leadership choices that weren't yours, but for which you have to suffer the consequences. I mean, we wanted to lean into other kinds of emotional palettes rather than just fear. I mean, at the end of the day, this is a horror show with an odd cast for a horror show. I mean, usually it's a, a bunch of unprepared teenagers that don't see it coming. I mean, we've got, you know, 129 highly trained, you know, seamen and, uh, and, and basically military officers. And that means you have to sort of shake it up somehow and drive that less by less with fear and more with other kinds of emotions. Dave, um, you mentioned being a wilderness guide. Uh, I just want to know what you brought to the show from, from that. Well, I think, and this is, this dovetails into something we, you know, Sue and I discussed from the beginning is, you know, wanting to make sure that we n- never had characters who were, uh, sort of in on the tragedy in a sense of knowing they were all doomed. I mean, these characters fought to survive until they, 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 they couldn't anymore. And, and with that comes a total retention of every, every aspect of your character, your sense of humor, your sense of high irony, you know, wit, um, you know, sarcasm, all this stuff that you might want to sort of leech out of characters as they, as they enter their tragic periods. But we wanted to make sure all those things were the case. And that's certainly something I know from having been a wilderness guide and a medic is when people are under duress, they don't become grim. <laughs> they become very kooky uh, sometimes um, just to keep themselves going and much more warmth of people's humanity when they're under duress. You know, I've been in flash floods before, um, you know, where, you know, people are sort of could die in a moment. The most gruesome thing I ever treated was a was a chainsaw injury in a very rural area where a guy was sort of in the backseat of a car having had a, a having basically cut through his neck with a chainsaw and. Um, you know, being with him for an hour until an ambulance could reach us sort of and his sense of humor in those those moments would really surprise me and stuck with me. I, I haven't luckily had a lot a long list of those experiences, but enough to know that people's um, people's uh, they, they don't they don't numb up um, like you would expect in moments like that. That first half of the season, some of the more critical reviews of the show, which I think are inaccurate, have said that it really takes its time. It's really like uh, almost too long, too extended, like in that space. And that's what I liked about it is that we were getting in all of this detail, all of this texture that then it sort of burned down quite literally in some cases in the back half of the season. And I'm wondering about like how you maintain the storytelling through those early hours, which I mean, they are slow moving, but deliberately so. So how did you kind of like find ways to keep the story going, even though everybody was sitting trapped in a ship in the middle of the ice? I don't understand that criticism, I have to say. When you look at episode one, they get trapped in ice. Episode two, you know, one of the lieutenants is killed by an enormous polar bear, supposedly. Mm -hmm. Episode three, the captain of your expedition is killed. 
that's huge. Those are huge turns to play in the first three episodes. <laughs> it's like, I don't know. What more do people want in your first three? A lot of horror on TV is built around the jump scares you've talked about before. Like, certainly I've I've enjoyed certain seasons of American Horror Story. I've enjoyed The Walking Dead, you know, but those are very much around like, okay, here's a zombie, you know, or here's a, a vampire or whatever it is in a certain season of American Horror Story. And this is um, this is more atmospheric. It's a little moodier. And uh, that's, that's what I really sparked to in it. And I'm wondering, like, what conversations you were having about, like, how we're going to create the visual style of this show, uh, the music of the show, which is very distinctive. Like, what conversations were you having about building the mood, in essence, through visuals, through sound, things like that? Yeah, well, we knew we wanted the uh, the core experience of watching this, apart from the the, the horror element, to be uh, what these men on this real expedition must have experienced, which was the wonder of discovery. And so that meant that those landscapes had to feel epic um, in the way that landscapes in Westerns feel epic. Uh, and that it had to feel like there was um, there were ambiguous codes in the landscape that were you know were, it was crucial to crack them, but it wasn't going to be easy in the way that sometimes uh, war films have that sense that the, the landscape holds a key to survival that, um, that that might supersede you know one's even one's own ingenuity or or that the landscape has a kind of an attitude towards the men in the landscape, the figures in the landscape. And so we looked at a lot of uh, war films and Westerns and, you know, genres that that excel at outsizing their environments because we wanted to f- the, the world of the show to feel like it was full of wonder and also that it was a bit um, bigger than the actual world, a bit more curated than the actual world. And one example we gave um, our collaborators was to think of how something like the Overlook Hotel works in Kubrick's The Shining. You absolutely believe that's a real hotel, but it does feel a bit outsized and a bit sort of hyper-curated in a way that makes one uncomfortable. You've both talked about hubris and like the idea that you can remake the world as you see it and that's uh, the way it should be. And uh, I think that's kind of the center of this show. Like uh, what do you see as kind of um, the folly of the hubris of the the Franklin expedition? Obviously they all died. So <laughs> that like that's a folly written itself right there. But like where do you think they went wrong, I guess, in terms of like not accounting for – uh, a thing they couldn't understand, if that makes sense. They were also just victims of just bad luck. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if they had gone one year earlier, right, yeah. or just even a few months earlier, they may not have found the Northwest Passage, but they may have survived. Right. For an expedition to disappear like this is the reason why the Franklin Expedition is legendary is because it's it didn't happen. Um, we do know from – the ice core data that the three years that our ships were trapped were the three coldest years in an 800-year history wow. of the yeah. region. So, yeah, absolutely, they were damned by hubris, but they were killed, you know, just by by bad luck. By bad luck, yeah. yeah. I uh, want to talk a little bit about designing a monster or a creature or a Toonbok. I don't want to call him a monster. I think he's just misunderstood. Uh, he looks very original in the sense that, like, he looks like he could exist. Uh, and I want to know how you got to that place because he's a very creepy design, but he looks organic in a way that doesn't always happen. So uh, tell me about designing a monster for television. Well, I mean, one, you know, I've, I've definitely read comments about the show that people are – some people are disappointed the monster isn't quote-unquote scarier. And I think that that speaks to a, just a misunderstanding of what the monster's role is in the show. The monster isn't meant to be uh, some kind of predator from hell. You know what I mean? It's uh, in, in the mythology in which it exists, it is a, a, an arbiter. It is a, a keeper of equilibrium. 
them. It is neither terrifying nor um, benevolent. It is something neutral. And so, you know, given that it ha- occupies that that role, we wanted to make it look like it occupied that role. I mean, it's obviously terrifying when it's ripping you apart, but, uh, you know, in and of itself, it's not demonic or something like that. And so we enlisted a, the help of a creature designer called Neville Page, who's worked with a lot of A-list directors and on fantastic projects. And, you know, we told him uh, to try to build something that would, would work, um, you know, biomechanically, uh, but also that's, that looked more presidential than frightening. You know, we knew the situations were going to be frightening, but we wanted it to have a certain majesty that, that was a part of its station in this mythology. It helped us knowing what we didn't want. You know, sometimes you get at things by telling them not this, not this, not this, and then you're able to drill down on what it is. You know, we knew we didn't want claws or fangs. I think my favorite detail of the tomb box though, are his eyebrows. Yeah. I feel like I've never seen eyebrows before in a creature. And once I believe Neville had a sketch, he's like, oh, I don't know about the eyebrows. And Dave and I, we're keeping the eyebrows because <laughs> that was actually the most uncanny aspect of it where you just, it made you flinch. Yeah. It looks like a, it looks kind of like a man yeah. in some ways. And it's really strange. Like I, I went to an event for the show and I hadn't seen all of it yet. I'd just seen the first couple and I turned the corner and there was this giant bust. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, it took my breath away for a second. It was very uh, strange. I'm going to keep that bust. I, that's my big parting gift from the show <laughs> is I'm taking that. You're just going to hang it up in your apartment? Yes. <laughs> well, I we've talked a, a bit about how you didn't watch a lot of horror in the writer's room. You watched other stuff. But I do want to ask you as we kind of close out the discussion, what is your favorite scary movie, your favorite scary novel, just your favorite scary story? And, and Sue, I'd, I'd love to hear the answer to that from you first. I'm sort of a classicist. I love Turner the Screw. Mm. You know, I, I'm a Shirley Jackson fan. I just love those sort of more gothic horror tinged stuff. In terms of movies, in terms of films, I haven't seen the newest Lars von Scher, but I find all of Lars von Scher movies to be the most absolutely frightening horror films. Dave? Todd Haynes' Safe is a great American horror movie. Um, I think Come and See, Elon Klimov's war film Come and See is one of the best horror movies. Um, I think my top horror film is probably Picnic at Hanging Rock. I just think that leaves me so frightened every time I watch it. From the canon, I think Carpenter's The Thing and The Shining. And, you know, those films are obviously they're very dear to dear to my heart. But um, I love horror films that somehow sneak in under the title of another genre, and those are the ones that end up really sticking with me. I think Dave and I, you and I did not mention one real horror film, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the thing, the thing is, the, the thing, thing is, yes. yeah. <laughs> well, Sue, Dave, thank you so much for joining me. Everybody should watch The Terror. Thank you. Thank you. Up next, my conversation with Eric Adol and Ethan Vanderrein, the sound designers from A Quiet Place. Hello, listeners of I Think You're Interesting. This is Casey Newton, Silicon Valley editor of The Verge. And you know what would make you even more interesting? Listening to my new podcast, Converge. Each week, we'll bring you fresh ideas and a sense of what it's like to build a company from the people who are actually doing it. And we'll do it all with games that no one has ever played. It's like HQ trivia if there was only one contestant and it was literally impossible to win money. So far, we've got guests lined up from Google, Lyft, Pocket, and that bodega near your house. You know, the one with the weird cat. The first episode drops Wednesday, May 23rd, wherever you get your podcasts. Converge. You've never heard a tech show like this.
My guests are Eric Adol and Ethan Vanderrein of Quiet Place. Eric, hello. Hello. Good to be here. Ethan, it's good to have you here as well. Nice to be here. So A Quiet Place, for listeners who aren't aware, is a horror film that is, and I'm using big air quotes around this, silent. Um, You know, people have been saying it has no dialogue, but it does have dialogue in sign language. And people have been saying it's, you know, silent, but it's got a lot of sound work going on. And you guys were working on that. Let's just kind of get a broad overview of when you heard about this movie, when you heard about this challenge, like what were the biggest issues you had to figure out, like on a top level of just what this movie was going to sound like? Well, yeah, you know, the very first uh, experience of figuring out this movie was first reading the script. And uh, we could tell right off the bat that this was kind of a unique experience. It's uh, not a lot of dialogue. There is some dialogue, but um, very little dialogue in the script. Uh, we also have a central character who's deaf, and the whole conceit is that uh, silence is critical for survival. If you make too much noise, you're dead. So... Right off the bat, we thought, well, this is a sound designer's dream. <laughs> and uh, it's people think, oh, a ton of sound in a movie is harder. Um, and that's really not true. Um, this film was just as challenging as some of the more bombastic films we do. As soon as we met John Krasinski, before we could even say, this is a sound designer's dream, he said, this is a sound designer's dream. <laughs> <laughs> He's the uh, director and star of the film. He's the director, guys. star, and also screenwriter. Oh, great. It's interesting to us that that it is being you know thought of as a silent film because, as you already mentioned, there's a lot of sound in it. In fact, sound is really the, the key sort of driver of the narrative of the movie. So for us... Starting to work on the movie, the, the sort of big thing to figure out was, you know, establishing the sonic environment and the sonic rules mm. of the movie. How much sound is too much sound that 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 our characters would be killed by the by the monsters who hunt by sound. So setting that those rules up and then being able to stick to them was sort of one of the first things we started on. And then beyond that, we started diving into the idea of creating these, what John came to call sonic envelopes for our characters, where sonically we could sort of go into the point of view of our characters and experience the world the way they were experienced the world. Um, And this particularly comes into play with the character of Regan, who who plays the daughter, who is deaf, um, and she's also played by an actress who is deaf, Millicent Simmons. So, her actual stories to to John about how she hears the world, what her experience is like, um, he relayed to us, and that's what we sort of based our work on for her her point of view. That's really interesting. Um, I, I want to kind of come back to that idea of rules. Like what were some of the some of the guidelines you set for yourself in, like you said, how much noise is too much noise? One of our catchphrases working on this movie um, as we were developing the soundtrack was uh, if something was a little too loud, anyone in the room sensing that while we're working on it would go, 
dead. <laughs> the character's dead. So that was kind of like our little thermometer um, just in, internally. Um, you know, obviously, this family has gone through extraordinary lengths to cleverly create this homestead where um, they can survive quietly to the point of marking floorboards that they can avoid stepping on, pouring sand on the trails outside so there aren't twigs or leaves crunching that would attract attention. Nobody's mentioned this before, but uh, there's no doors being opened or closed in this entire movie. <laughs> you know, for us, it was about really stripping everything out and building up what we needed, which is sometimes kind of the opposite of what happens when you're putting the sound together for a movie. Like uh, everything is covered and designed. And then during the mix, you kind of start tweaking with that. Here, it was kind of the inversion of that. We tried to just start with nothing and just introduce the very specific sounds that we wanted for any moment. And what that kind of did, in a sense, was it made small sounds really big and small sounds really important. And I also think what it did was it kind of pulled the rug out from under the audience a little bit. I think viewers are not used to having such a stripped down environment where they can hear themselves breathing in the theater or hear themselves crunching on popcorn, which became a really funny meme um, <laughs> with audiences. And in a sense, that kind of makes audiences an active participant in the whole conceit. You know, they become a part of the, the cinematic experience. They're holding their breath the same way the characters on screen are. Um, so it becomes very sort of participatory in a way. And then when we do break those rules of silence and things go south and you might hear something that's louder than everything else has been in the film, that's kind of shocking. Right. Whereas that same loud sound in a different context in any other movie where you've got wall-to-wall -wall music score and a lot of sound wouldn't read as big or jarring. Just to, just to elaborate on the idea of, of contrast, you know, Eric mentioned that when, you know, when we did sort of break the, the, the sonic roles that we had established and played something loud, um, that was very shocking. Conversely, there's, a, there's three moments in the film where we take all of the sound out. And I think those are actually probably the most shocking and also in many ways the most intimate moments in the movie. And, and these are all these the three moments that we do that are all moments where we go into the sonic perspective of the of the deaf daughter, um, Regan, uh, when she has her cochlear implant turned off. And so these are moments when we're in her point of view, and it's complete silence. And this is something that, you know, we've never done in our careers where we've gone to complete digital zero. And some of the feedback we've been hearing on the movie is that these are these moments are what people remember. Yeah. Yeah. Like even here in the studio, we have the fluorescent lights and we have the, yeah. you know, all these different little noises. Um, I, one of the things I kind of want to, I don't want to spoil this movie for people who haven't seen it though. Everybody in the world has seen it at this point, but the movie starts with a sort of five minute sequence that lays out the rules of the world almost entirely, uh, entirely through like camera work and sound and, you know, the visual and oral elements of film without dialogue. And it's really a bravura sequence in a lot of ways. And I'm wondering, you talked about stripping all the sound out. 
but that sequence has a lot of ambient noise. It's the characters digging through an abandoned store in this uh, post-apocalyptic world that the movie is set in. So tell me about constructing like ambient noise in that setting, in that store, and then when they're on their walk home. Right. Well, before we get into the pharmacy, we establish the exterior of this abandoned town. That kind of uh, helps with this logic idea that's um, elaborated on further in the film where a louder sound will mask a smaller sound. And that is a trick that they can use to survive. You know, one of the only conversations in the film is had next to a waterfall because that sound can mask their talking. So similarly, in the opening of the film, we establish the exterior of the pharmacy and there's winds and air and just the, the presence of air. And we wanted that to be loud enough to then allow the quieter sounds inside, keeping with the logic of this film, be masked. Hmm. So you could hear a little pitter patter of feet of, you know, the young, <laughs> the youngest uh, son of this family uh, as he's playing around the pharmacy. But of course, the mother is searching for some medication for her older son, who is sick, being mature, knowing the rules, knowing this world that they're living in, is doing her utmost to be so delicate with the little pill bottles and finding the right one. So we as sound designers have to make that so delicate, but then we add one little tick of the plastic bottle that's just a little too loud and makes us as an audience feel the same thing that she's feeling, which is like, oh, careful now. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and then we just sort of start to set up the rules. The young little son sees a toy space shuttle up on the shelf um, that he wants to play with and knocks it off the shelf. And his older sister, Regan, is right there to catch it, but she can't catch it loudly. She has to catch it quietly. So without dialogue, just with sort of the sound and the camera work, we're setting up those rules that will uh, unfold the rest of the film. And just just to expand on the, the idea of the sonic rules, I think there's a lot of subtle things we did that people won't notice. For instance, uh, in most movies, uh, when we're outside in nature, we would play, you know, birds and crickets and single crickets and single birds. In this movie, for instance, we do play cricket beds um, outside, but we don't play any individual single crickets. Hmm. With To reinforce the logic, you know, anything, any single sound that stands out from its background that's sort of um, absorbing it, masking it, is going to be dead. So there's no single crickets. There's no single bird calls, except for I should say there's a few single crow calls in the beginning of the movie, but they're flying up in the air. So all of this sort of reinforces the the sound rules of the of the movie that anything that stands out from the background would have been killed already. And anything that has survived has figured out those rules. I will say this, this is a very mild spoiler. I won't tell you what happens. That toy space shuttle does make a noise at some point. How long did you sort of agonize over how loud to play that? How like, how big <laughs> to make that moment? Because it's when we learn something very big about the world. 
That's a great question. And those little toys have tiny little speakers. So they emit uh, what is a high frequency sound. And the human ear is particularly attuned to those high frequencies. That's how we have evolved as hearing beings. We have to hear the twig cracking of the predator sneaking up behind us. That's in that high frequency range. We have to hear the baby crying so that we can help nurture, comfort the baby. Those are those, we have this high frequency sensitivity. So that sound of this little space shuttle toy being high frequency cuts like a knife through anything. <laughs> and, um, and obviously the creatures that this family is trying to avoid can hear that as well in the same way. One other kind of thing that we really wanted to experiment with with that sound was um, when that toy is activated, it has kind of a happy sound to it, yeah. which um, I think is a fun juxtaposition against the horror of that sound like having simultaneously this fun little doodly doodly yeah <laughs> just opposed just opposed with this terrible situation it's um that that counterpoint is always really interesting yeah yeah one of the other things i was thinking about with this with this movie was the sound design of the creatures themselves which i'm sure took you a while so i, I kind of want to ask you what do you think makes a scary monster sound like what are some classic monsters of of movies that you like thought of or maybe even said you know i really i really love that but we don't want to do that you know well i mean i i guess you know one of the big things we learned in the process of of sound designing the creatures in this movie is that and it's it's funny too because it also applies to the movie in general but what makes them actually the most scary is what we don't play for them sound wise. It's sort of the whole, the whole, you know, idea of Jaws and not seeing the monster too much in a way makes it scarier. And by the same token, what we learned in this movie was that hearing less of the creatures actually makes them more scary because it sort of, and again, it sucks us into the become participants in the movie. So we're wondering how close these creatures are and we're wondering, you know, where they are in terms of the sounds for the creatures themselves. We had a very um, early sort of brainstorming session with John Krasinski, the director, and he sort of spoke about, you know, th three sort of main modes of, of operation that they would sort of have distinct sounds for. And, you know, one, one mode was basically when they're sort of searching out their prey. And another mode would be when they're actually attacking their prey. And then the other sort of main mode would be sort of when they're between those two modes, and he he described it as a sort of idling mode when they're they're close, um, and they're just sort of trying to trying to figure out their environment because the the key to these creatures is they're blind, they're completely blind, but their hearing is hyper acute, mm -hmm. and so we started playing with the idea that you know like. Like some other real life animals, they use their hearing to create like basically a 3D map of their environment that allows them in a way to navigate through the environment. So that that led us to start uh, playing around with 
the idea of echolocation. And so we started drawing inspiration from real, real world animals that use echolocation to navigate through the world. And that developed into the sort of clicking sounds that, that you hear sort of based off of dolphins and, and bats and animals like that that use echolocation. I mean, the, th the thing about it is we wanted it to be sort of um, people to understand, you know, quickly what was going on by the types of sounds they were hearing. But we also didn't want them to be sounds that were recognizable. Right. So the idea of using a recognizable pattern, but with fresh ingredients, fresh sounds that people haven't heard before. When, when I think of sound in horror, the first thing I think of is, you know, the strings in Psycho, the very loud uh, shrieking violins. But also I think about like a lot of uh, more psychological films are, that have like kind of that underlying bed of like ominous tones that are sort of laying there. When you think about scary movies and like horror movies and like what they sound like, like what, what do you think makes a movie sound? scary. My personal opinion. Mm, yeah. Your personal opinion. The scariest films to me are ones that utilize negative space. You know, that applies visually to, you know, the chiaroscuro dark with a little bit of light and the same with sound, the equivalent of dark being silence. <laughs> I mean, the cheesiest version of that in sound for a horror film is jump scares. You know, you get really, really quiet and then somebody looks in the mirror and then bam, you know. Um, <laughs> but that negative space is a really kind of powerful tool to make you lean in. You know, when there's just a lot of sound, music on whatever, it can kind of push you back in a way and maybe numb you if there's too much. So having a stripped down, quiet palette helps with that. And in terms of tones, I mean, some of my favorite horror films are – it's debatable if it's horror genre or not. I consider it horror. Um, a lot of the films of David Lynch. Yeah. And he's his own sound designer. And uh, oftentimes, he'll, all he'll have is just a rumble yeah. going. And you don't even notice it until he takes it out. I love that that kind of stuff. Actually, one of my favorite scary sounds ever was a, a series of films Ethan worked on, Lord of the Rings trilogy, the sound oh, yeah. of the, the ring rapes. Oh, sure. Yeah. Just terrifying. Maybe a little less terrifying once I realized that it was actually one of the... <laughs> <laughs> the director's wife. <laughs> but, <laughs> she had a scream, or she probably still has a scream like no one else. <laughs> when do you know you've you've gone too far? When do you know that it's become a wall of noise and you need to pull back? I think um, we we know when we start <laughs> when we start zoning out, right? You know, because that's what that's what happens. You know, you lose interest, you become disengaged, mm -hmm. and so I think for us, we're constantly having to react on a gut level, how is this affecting me? And if you find yourself checking out, you've gone too far, there's too much, and you need to figure out how to strip back in order that the audience can become re-engaged. In a way, sound is a lot like color. Mm -hmm. And when you start mixing a lot of colors on the canvas, you know, it turns brown. <laughs> and sound is kind of a similar thing. It's uh it's about not throwing every color out there. It's being really selective about which colors you use. And as Ethan said, you know, it's that's a very gut level kind of thing. You know, the 
Yeah, well, I'm reminded of you know a lot of people uh, who have insomnia use white noise generators to fall asleep, and white noise is essentially a bunch of frequencies all playing at once. It's like a bunch of colors on the canvas turning brown, and that lulls you. And uh, that happens in films all the time. You got big music going. You got all these other sounds going, especially in action movies. Um, <laughs> and uh, that kind of creates this drone that uh, kind of you just start to nod off, and which is counterintuitive, but um, it's really true. But uh, to me, it's kind of amazing how sound really affects how you feel, whether you're tired or alert or how your heartstrings are being pulled, if you're feeling fear. It's kind of fascinating. Like our ability to perceive sound just in evolutionary history precedes our ability to see. Mm. There's something so deeply rooted and elemental and part of the reptilian brain in us where sound really affects us, you know, like music bringing joy or sadness. Um, and as sound designers, that's, you know, we're kind of can be the puppeteers of those emotions and in maybe a more subliminal way yeah. than, uh, than visuals. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you saying that thing about uh, action movies being kind of numbing. I went to a film festival and I was so tired by like the last day I was there, as you always are at a film festival. And so I was like, I'm going to see this movie that's all gun battle. Like the whole thing is people fighting. I had the most pleasant nap at that movie. <laughs> it was just, it was amazing. <laughs> no, uh, I, I do want to ask, like you mentioned um, how you can use sound to create different colors. Like what are some sounds that we'd be surprised are as effective as they are that, that, you know, maybe you've turned to before, or you know, of like, we'd be surprised that how, what sense of emotion they uh, evoke. The first thing that comes to mind is um, the idea that low end can create a sense of power. Ethan and I both collaborated on all of the transformers films. And one thing that uh, those require is creating a sense of scale, a sense of power, and low end is kind of really important to that. What do you mean and by low end, I should ask? So low end is in bass. Okay. So, um, you know, the more high frequencies you pile up on top of things in a strange way, the smaller things can feel. Mm -hmm. So if you have a skyscraper toppling over and crashing to the ground, you strip out all of the high end right. and create low end. Mm -hmm. And and it's funny how even small things that you record can, if recorded in the right way with the most bass frequency response, can sound bigger than the biggest things. Like, for example, a robot falling over. If you were to dump a big cargo crate container onto the ground from a crane, it's probably going to sound louder than if you take something small that can create a bass frequency response like... One thing that we've used for something like that is a, a dryer, <laughs> just a normal washer dryer door slamming shut and it resonates and that creates this illusion of scale and size and power. Well, we're, we're kind of coming into the end here, but I want to ask about working with a composer, working with musicians, getting the music in there, because that's so important, especially to a movie like this, where sometimes the music is one of the main things you're hearing. Tell me about your process when you're like working with the composer at that stage of the process. Marco Beltrami composed uh, the score to A Quiet Place. And uh, Marco is just such an incredible artist and, and collaborator. Um, the first time I'd ever worked with him was on iRobot, which he 
composed incredibly quickly. <laughs> and more recently, World War Z and uh, The Shallows. Marco's got a real sense of the big picture, you know? Like the worst thing that can happen is each department from sound design to music uh, thinks uh, thinks as in terms of their, their fiefdom and all they care about is their little part of the puzzle. And um, a composer like Marco, especially, he's the consummate storyteller, sees the big picture, understands um, how it's all going to fit together. And a film like this, it's really critical because there's all these handoffs. There's moments where if there had been score, it wouldn't make any more sense. Like if we moments where we're going into the deaf daughter's point of view and complete silence, if score had been going through that, it would just be clobbered. And I think Marco really understood those big picture concepts uh, in a really gracious way. Well, I want to ask one last question, which is, when you go to the movies now uh, that you haven't worked on or when you see uh, something on TV that you haven't worked on, do you ever hear stuff where you're like, wow, how did they do that? Or do you like know so much now that that never happens to you? I prefer not to be thinking about the uh, technical <laughs> breakdown when I go to a movie. If I'm starting to sort of dissect the film, then maybe it's not as effective as it should be. Um, Ethan, what well, you- just to elaborate on that, it's, it's, it's a funny joke among people in the sound movie sound community that, you know, the only time we get any recognition or notice is when we've screwed something up, you know, in, in general, it's like, if you're thinking too much about the sound, then it's probably because something's been done wrong. Hopefully in this particular movie, we're talking about a quiet place because uh, a lot of people have been talking about the sound. That's not the case, (laughs) but, but in general, you know, sound is one of those things that works as, we, as we've already talked about in so many subliminal and um, subconscious that we normally don't really think about it too much unless, you know, there's something off about it. That said, though, there are sometimes there's some super impressive stuff that uh, I mean, there's some incredible artists out there. Just recently, I saw District 9 again Mm, and was just blown away by, you know, David Whitehead's design of the alien's vocals, which is connotes intelligence. And but it's a completely constructed language made of insectoid clicks. And um, so once in a while, there's uh, things that stand out that make you go, oh, yeah, that's that's gorgeous. It's beautiful. You know what it is? It's when people are bold enough to like break formula and to to try something new, try something fresh, you know, go somewhere where people haven't gone before uh, because it's when we fall back on the sort of tried and trusted, you know, sounds and, and ways of doing things that, that it's, it's just something that people have already heard before and it's not going to get people's attention. No, I assure you, nobody's talking about the sound in this movie because you screwed it up. <laughs> uh, so Eric Adol, Ethan Van Der Rijn, quiet places in theaters, go see it. Thanks Thanks so much. much. The scariest thing about I Think You're Interesting is hosting and executive producing. But I do it. I'm Todd Vanderwerf. I'm the host and executive producer. Fortunately, I have a great team behind me. Bridget Armstrong is our brilliant producer. Nishat Kurwa is the executive producer of audio at Fox Media. Miles Ewell is our sound designer. Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley designed the logo. Alex Ulrich is our production manager. Carrie Clements is our production coordinator. 
This week, we recorded in the Vox Media Podcast Studio in New York with the recording engineer Srinivas Ramamurthy. And we also recorded at MCE Entertainment in Los Angeles. The recording engineer there was Ernie Hurtado. You can rate, review, and subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, on Spotify. It really helps us get the word out. We really love it when you do. If you have something else you want to tell me, you can email me, toddatvox.com, or you can email the show, itii.podcast, itye.podcast at vox.com. And of course, you could tweet at me, TVOTI, tweet at me at Tavoti. We're going to be back next week with a really special episode that you're really going to like if you like the things that I like. But until then, please remember, don't make any noise. They'll hear it and they'll come and they'll get you. And I should stop talking right now.